Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 90 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. My guest for today's show is Adam Schumann, combat veteran and inspiration for the book and movie Thank You for Your Service. Adam's last tour in Iraq was during the surge of 2007-2008, and the book and movie chronicles his combat experiences coming home and recovering from war. There's a missing piece between what we did over there and between that and coming home, and there's there's a big that's a big chunk of life that the people around you don't get to see and experience, and it, and it changes that person forever, and it changes those people at home forever too. I couldn't imagine being on the home front waiting for someone I love waiting for that knock on the door or whatever. Jesus, that would be maddening. So yeah, it, it's, it changes everybody involved. And, uh, so yeah, I think anybody can relate to it. And, uh, yeah, I think it trans transcends, uh, all generations and anybody that's, that's ever lived or known a combat. Event. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. You know, we're trying to change the way that veterans, service members, their families, and those that support them think and talk about veteran mental health. Uh, I have a, uh, a pretty exciting guest on the show today uh, who, um, who, who may be familiar to, to some of you, um, uh, but maybe not in the, the way that uh, he and I are going to have a conversation. Uh, today's guest is uh, uh, Adam Schumann, and you might remember Adam Schumann from the, uh, the movie Thank You for Your Service. Um, he, I had the opportunity to meet him and the author of the book, uh, Thank You for Your Service and the Good Soldiers, uh, David Finkel, uh, at an event recently and uh, wanted to, to have an opportunity to have Adam come on the show and tell a little bit of his story. So, uh, Adam, welcome to the show. Hi, hi. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me on and uh, looking forward to it. 
Yeah, I, I am looking forward to it, too. Um, obviously, again, uh, you know, having a lot of people uh, probably having seen the film um, and, uh, you know, and, and whatever opinions they might have about the film. Um, but uh, I think it would be interesting to hear sort of the, the background behind it. Before we get into the film, though, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your military service and so on. Yeah, uh, okay. Well, I was uh, born and raised in North Dakota. Uh, joined the Army uh, after 9-11 and uh, found myself uh, over the next six years uh, spending three of those years in Iraq. Uh, during the, uh, did the invasion and then, you know, following on. Uh, so I had three uh, year-long deployments. My last deployment was 15 months. Uh, but I got sent home about 11 and a half months into it for actually was medevac for PTSD. I don't know how often that happens, but, uh, you know, I didn't really have a choice. I came back off mission one day and my first sergeant and commander were sitting there and they said, you gotta go. So that was it. Uh, yeah. So got out of the army and spent, uh, spent a lot of time, uh, in the mental health community trying to get better and bouncing back and forth between different doctors and different treatments and uh, figuring out what works and what didn't because everybody's different I guess and uh, so that's kind of my background and then uh, towards the end of of my tour uh, we had a journalist with us David Finkel who's a Pulitzer Prize winning author and and journalist he wrote the book, The Good Soldiers, based on the whole battalion, the 2nd Battalion, 16th Infantry's uh, deployment for the surge uh, in 2007. And uh, he finished up that book, and uh, I was mentioned in there a couple t- couple times, uh, a few different incidents. And then uh, he thought there was more to the story, so he called me up a couple years after I'd been out, and he asked if I'd be willing to uh, to share my journey of coming home and trying to get better with uh, with him and subsequently the rest of the world so uh and then uh i guess in the end i'm i'm sitting here talking with you on the phone and, and doing this podcast and and it's it's really come full circle i guess from about 10 years ago yeah it's uh, it's always amazing how we can sum up about uh, 15 years in about 30 seconds one of the things that uh, that you didn't mention and that that you know, of course, I hadn't realized, and, and it really wasn't in the movie um, exactly as much, and, and I guess it blown by, but you and I were in Iraq at the same time on the same FOB. Uh, so my yeah. Yeah. my battalion, so we were uh, 2nd Infantry Division. Um, we were yep. there, and we, so you had deployed on 15-month orders, or you guys got deployed and then got extended? No, it was a 15-month order right. uh, from what I heard yeah. yeah, I think it started out as it was an 18 month order, but it ended at 15 months because yeah. during the surge, it was like indefinite. They didn't know when we were coming home and they just threw out 18 months because I don't think they could keep you in country longer than that. Right. And we were there on 12 month orders and then got extended. And, and that was when, yeah. so the surge really happened in sort of three stages was those of us who were already yeah. there. Yeah. Then you guys who overlapped us, and then the guys that came after you, and those were sort of the three fifteen month. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and, yeah, and so personally, I know um, how uh, how particularly kinetic that deployment was, um, and and how yeah. 
difficult it was. And that's the one you said that um, uh, David Finkel was embedded with you. Um, and, uh, and, and, and there was a story that I had heard that, uh, where he was like, where you and he met, but it was almost like right before you were supposed to leave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, one of those happened, you know, I'd seen the guy, you know, a journalist with the unit, they tell you all about publicity and who you, what you can and can't say. So basically by the time the orders disseminate down to the platoon level, they tell you stay the fuck away from the journalist. Don't go near him. Don't talk to him. Just leave him alone. Let him do his thing, kind of, because they don't want you saying anything. Stupid. Right. Mm-hmm. So I had just, uh, well, he showed up right after Doster died, but uh, I wasn't really open for any discussion. And I think that's when he finally heard, well, he'd been hearing about me, I guess, throughout the deployment, maybe. And uh, I, I had been told I was going home. And I was basically in my room, uh, packing my shit, getting ready to turn in my weapon. And I don't know, I mean, you could just about imagine what it feels like walking around a fob in Iraq without a weapon. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. when they took my weapon, I still had like 24 hours before I had to fly out. And uh, it was just weird. Uh, everywhere I went, people were stopping me like, where's your rifle? You know, I'm like, fuck off, you know? So, uh I guess at the time I was a pretty salty staff sergeant and, uh, I was getting ready to go. I was bombed and here comes this journalist knocking on my door and, uh, the whole platoon was gone out on mission. So I was feeling down from that. And, uh, I just about told the guy to get out of, you know, just, mm-hmm. I basically just Pound unloaded sand. everything. And, yeah. And, uh, and he's just such a, he's just such an interesting guy. I mean, something stopped me for a second and, uh, he said, well, well, I said, I said, I suppose I know why you're here. I thought he was going to come report on me getting sent home. And I was going to tell him where he could take it and, and go from there. And he said, well, no, I didn't know about that. He said, I'm here because I keep hearing, you know, he, he's, a, he's like, I've been asking around, like, who I should interview, who's, who's who. And he said he kept hearing my name, that, that I was one of the best, or if not the best, in the battalion. So he uh, he came down to talk to me about that instead and that kind of opened the door and and that was you know in 2007 so we're looking at 12 years ago and the guy is you know i credit him with with helping save my life you know because i had this hip pocket therapist this guy i could talk to at any given time reporting the story um basically living with me middle of the night i'd be having a tough night and i couldn't sleep and i'd just head to the river and i'd fish and here he was 30 degree weather sitting on the rocks behind me with a notepad, just listening to me talk. So, uh, just, he's just, I can't say enough good things about the guy. It was just truly amazing. And it's, uh, it's one of those things where it's hard to be sort of in the story, but of the story, but, but it had to be difficult for you hearing him say, everybody says you're the top guy, but you don't feel like the top guy because the crew is out on patrol. You're about to leave. You don't have you. You feel yep. like you're the lowest of the low, and he's telling you that everybody's saying you're the highest of the high, and that doesn't match up. No, no, it was, uh, it really, I think that stumbled me up in my head enough to give him enough time to, to really warm up to me, and I think that ultimately led to this whole relationship and books and movies and whatnot, so uh, it's a really interesting 
chain of events, I guess. Exactly. And I, I think the other thing that I'm hearing you say, and this is one thing I see with the veterans that I work with, is we want to tell our story. We want people to know yeah. what happened to us. And at the same time, we don't know how to tell it ourselves, right? Nobody can drag it out of us. I I experienced the same thing. No. You know, and so for you, you had someone that you were able to tell your story to this one person, and that relieved you of the burden of your story. He Absolutely, just took it yeah. the next step, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I just I had to trust with, with him that what I said was ultimately going to be written down the way it was meant, you know, meant to be. And uh, honestly, I never read the book, Thank You for Your Service. Right. I, uh, I haven't read it. I read The Good Soldiers because... It, there wasn't much in there about me, maybe a page and a half worth uh, with an incident about a guy that was shot in the head. So uh, other than that, like it was to me, I still I was like, you know, why me? Why me through this whole process in the back of my mind? I was like, well, you know, maybe someone will read it and they'll go get help. And uh, that's just kind of been my my thing throughout the whole thing that. You know, it's uh I mean, I had a Vietnam guy come up to me after one of the movie screenings, and the guy, you know, was 70-some years old. The guy was just in tears. I mean, he was exhausted. It looked like he'd been crying the whole film. And uh, he said, he just said, thank you for telling our story, you know, and for a Vietnam vet to to relate to a story that's, that's three generations beyond, you know, we're looking at 40 years since he's, you know, served in Vietnam, a completely different conflict. But for him to be able to relate to that story was, that's when it kind of bridged the gap for me. And I realized that it's not my story. This is every soldier's story, every airman's story, every squid story, every coasty, marine, whatever story that you served and you served during a time of conflict. And, and these are the consequences that ultimately happened to a majority of, uh, of those that deployed no matter when you served and where you served, I guess. So it, that really solidified the whole thing for me, for sure. Now the, uh, and you said you haven't read the book. Um, no. Nope. But you, you went through it, you sat through screenings of the movie? Yeah, I've seen the movie probably more times than I should have. <laughs> right. Uh, so, you know, towards, you know, because we had this press tour, so we're traveling around to like cities. And we did like, you know, seven different cities over the course of a week, you know, like D.C. and Chicago and Atlanta and Dallas. And we're up in Toronto. It was it was just busy. So a lot of times they'd start the movie and I would just walk, you know, I'd go get go. We'd go have dinner and come back at the end of the movie. So I have to watch it every day. Uh, but, yeah, I've seen it a lot. Uh, there was a lot of versions of it. There were. But the movie itself is genuine, and and it got. I think he got everything right. The only thing that, I mean, I can't even. There's nothing I can really complain about at all. Right, and that was uh, you know. So with the book, and the book had been out for a while before the movie came out. Was there a lot of, um, was there the visibility for you after the book came out versus how the movie came out? Well, the book, no, I, you know, the book came and went, you know, basically, uh, never, I mean, I heard from like two people, I think, since those, both books have been out, I think maybe two people in the last 
10, 12 years have messaged me saying, Hey, I read the book and just hope you're doing all right. Versus the movie, it was, I mean, it wasn't a lot, but there was, you know, right away when it first came out, there was a lot of people messaging me afterwards, like, Hey, thanks. This is awesome. Love the movie. It helped me, you know, I'm finally talking about stuff. And uh, so it definitely reached a lot more audience. Uh, the film did, but you know, like any film, the books are usually always better, aren't they? Right, right. Well, you know, so when there were, um, you know, the, the movie came out and the movie showed your experience, you, you got out after that uh, that third deployment. Uh, I'd like to, to hear, if you wouldn't mind, what the uh, sort of treatments you went into. What So what was treatment like for you after getting out? David Finkel being right there with you, but what kind of stuff was going on for you before the book came out? Well, it was uh, it was interesting, you know, because you go from being at the top of your game and the best, you know, whatever. You're just you don't ever think about uh, going to the hospital and having to go through treatment and be messed up. Uh, I didn't. I never really went to the doctor my whole life. Uh, never went. Never needed to. I mean, there were probably times I should have, but I just never went. So I didn't know much about it. I was really naive, maybe ignorant. Um, so when I started going through the process, it was, it was a huge learning curve for me because I had, it's something I'd never done before. They just, they said, yeah, this is what's wrong with you. These are your treatments. These are, you know, here's your caseworker. This is, these are the steps we're going to take, you know, yada, yada. When you get to this point, if this doesn't work, we're going to go here, you know, the treatment plan and all that stuff. So I got the gist of it, but the one thing I didn't take into account is that, there's crappy people everywhere. It doesn't matter what profession you're in. And, you know, you think of a, you think of a doctor, you think, well, I got to believe everything they say. Their word is God. He's a doctor. She's a doctor, whatever. So you just do it and you go on with your life. Well, through some of my, tra- I had a lot of physical injuries as well. I was taking hydrocodone as prescribed, taking, you know, two pills every four to six hours as needed for pain. Well, I don't know any better. I just follow the instructions on the bottle. Boom, boom, boom. Well, almost two years go by and, and I'm having terrible stomach problems, intestine problems. So I go back to the VA and I'm like, look, I'm really messed up. Like this is, I'm, I'm worse off than I was. And I really hadn't started combating the mental stuff. You know, I was seeing a therapist and I was going through like, no, I hadn't started going through group therapy yet, but I was seeing like a therapist on, on the, on post going through like the army's oh what they call it the wtb the warrior transition battalion right Mm -hmm. so it's just a big check it's it's a big check the block system they need to account for soldiers why aren't these soldiers ready for combat we're going to stick them in a wtb we have to show that we're treating them and here they go well nobody really cares because the cadre that are there don't want to be there and the soldiers that are there don't want to be there so it's just this giant messed up system it was disgusting so I go to the VA with all these gut problems and they're like, well, you know, I'm sitting there with my wife at the time and this doctor is looking at me. He's like, well, you're an alcoholic. At the time, I didn't drink, never drank. I mean, I had a beer every now and then, but I could probably count on one hand how many beers I drank in a year. And my, my wife and I look at each other and we're just kind of puzzled, like, what the hell is he talking about? And he's like, you drink? And I said, no, I don't. And he kind of cocks his head to the side, you know. 
And he looks right at my wife. He says, ma'am, does your husband drink? And she's like, no. And he's like, are you sure? You know, like we're just completely lying to him or maybe I'm a closet drunk or something. So I'm starting to freak out because he all of a sudden orders me to go get like a, where you got to drink to die. And they do an MRI and then they injected something into my veins. It was like super hot. And I'm, I'm just scared. I had no idea what was going on. So we leave the hospital with no answers. We go back to our house. All I know is that something's wrong with my, my liver is distant or whatever. It's enlarged. And they're doing all these tests, and I'll find out when they get done with the test. We get home. My wife WebMDs my symptoms, punches in the, the medications I'm taking. Well, what's the first thing a doctor looks at when you show up at their office? What medications you're on, correct? So the only thing that pops up is hydrocodone is full of acetaminophen. Too much acetaminophen, the liver can't process it, messes up your liver. So that's why he thought I was an alcoholic. So we put two and two together. She takes my hydrocodone, dumps all the pills. So basically, you quit. I didn't know I was a yeah, cold you, turkey. You quit cold turkey after two years of constant hydrocodone use. Yeah. And I didn't even know I was addicted to it. I had no idea. I, it's not like I thought about it. It's not like I was craving it i was just in pain and you know how an opioid works when you stop taking it your body gets more pain because it's screaming for it so for the next for the next year of my life was torture i wanted to end my life there were days i'd lay on the couch with my face buried in pillows just screaming in pain i was puking i mean no offense to your listeners but shitting my pants like shaking it was disgusting i thought i was gonna die and it was all because I was following a doctor's orders. And then a doctor tells me that I'm an alcoholic and doesn't see right in front of him what's going on. So at this point, I lose all trust in medical care. And I say, fuck, I'm going to do this on my own. So lost faith in the system. And I'm going through, going through. And it, my mental, you know, my physical health started improving once I got off the hydrocodone. I mean, I was in pain. But it was tolerable. It was just like I was in the army. You know, you just felt like a rickety old man. Suck it you up know, and drive on. I don't need on. to take pills for that. Yeah, give me, a, give me some fucking Motrin. I'm, I'm going on. Uh, you know, I deployed my, right before my first deployment, I slipped a disc in my back. I should have never deployed. But being a grunt, you know, I didn't go to sick call. I just, I couldn't even bend over to tie my boots. You know, I would have been a P3 profile. They would have sent me to surgery. I would have been done. My career would have been over before it ever started. And basically, the only thing that saved it was the fact that I was a driver in a Bradley fighting vehicle, and I didn't have to get out and walk. So I was able to kind of heal myself through my first deployment, and then ever since then, it's just been jacked up. So that's why I was on the hydrocodone to begin with. So my mental health slides, starts going crazy, uh, shit with my wife isn't good, everything's just going to hell. And because of all the pain and everything in my body, I'm losing, I'm losing ground every day, because I'm not nothing is improving at this point because I'm coming off a hydrocodone addiction and I haven't addressed any of my mental health issues since coming back from three deployments in Iraq. So this is 2011, the spring of 2011, like I've had a couple suicide attempts and I'm, I'm, I'm at my wits end and I'm talking to my case manager and she says, I found a place, but you have to leave on Monday. And this was on a Friday. And I said, well, where is it? She said, well, it's in California. 
She shows me pictures. It's beautiful. I'm like, yep, I'm going. I'm gone. I said, if I don't leave Monday, I will, I'll never make it. I'm going to fuck. I'm going to kill myself. Went on, and I knew, you know, I went home and told my wife and she's like, what? You can't leave Monday. You know, you've got to work. I'm working as a civilian. I was a GS nine working as an HR specialist on Fort Riley. I'm the only source of income basically. So, you know, how am I going to disappear for four months and go to treatment? Well, Luckily, with the government job, you know, people can donate leave, and I worked with a lot of great people, and they donated leave to me so I could go to treatment. So I ship off on Monday. I'm gone, uh, like like a drop of the, foot in the hat. I got two kids. One's a baby, basically. My daughter's, what, seven? Uh, I just disappear to California, and I end up at this place called The Pathway Home, and it's ran by uh, Fred Gusman. I'm sure some of your listeners probably have heard of him. His his mental health model has basically been used since the 70s uh, for PTSD anyways. He started his career at Menlo Park, I think, um, at the VA out there. And, uh, yeah, so I spent the next, holy cow, how long was I there? Uh, seven months inpatient. Well, it was... It was in, it was outpatient, it was like a residential treatment facility. We, it was kind of like a barracks. We lived there and we went to treatment all day, but at night we were kind of free to do whatever we wanted to. And, uh, yeah, it saved my life. It was, uh, group therapy. We went through trauma therapy, uh, lots of, uh, yoga, got us out in the community, like just, uh, it was amazing. It was, it was truly amazing. And, uh turned everything around for me it really did it, it really helped me put all the other stuff that i've been battling throughout my whole life together because it wasn't just my combat you know as we all know it's uh, we got to work on every bit of trauma from the time we can remember until present date if we're ever going to deal with anything so it worked out well and that's that's kind of that's when the book ended was when i finished treatment and i got home so yeah, that was it. I mean, there's a, there's a lot more to it, I'm sure, but I could talk for hours on the treatment and what happened and, you know, whatnot. So you had actually, so you had gotten out and you had gone to the VA for physical stuff and were addressing some of the, the psychological stuff, but how long was it between when you got out, when you ETS from the Army, and when you got to Pathway Homes? How long way was it? How long was it? Um... My retirement date was March of 09, and I went to treatment almost exactly two years later. I left April of 2011 to go to the pathway home for my inpatient. So it took me two years of bouncing around and, you know, talking to different doctors and clinics and trying, you know, let's try this medication. Let's try this one. Well, if you're taking this one, you got to take these three so you can get an erection, and then you got to take these four so you can sleep. And it was a, it was a nightmare, and I hated it, and I felt like absolute shit. Do you feel like uh, two years, um, like it was a lifetime, like you took too long? I guess maybe it's kind of like uh, someone with the. Uh, I guess I did have a substance use problem. I didn't know it, but a lot of times, you know, they say you got to hit rock bottom before you can, you know, get out of it. And maybe that was the case for me. I can't. I don't suggest that route for everybody, but. I didn't know any better. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I just knew that 
everything in my life had just gotten flipped upside down. You know, I mean, I was a career army guy. I was trying to go to flight school and be a helicopter pilot. Shit. It just, it sucked. You know, uh, it didn't take long to be sitting out of the army going, what the hell am I going to do? Yeah. You still got to work and support a family and, and pay your bills and, and there's, there's no break, you know, it's like you come back from combat, you know, you just shot a dude in the face two weeks ago and now you're, you're ETS and out and you're, you're trying to figure out what the hell's going on, you know, all within a year. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that quickness of a, a turnaround, um, is even that can be hard, but it, it's interesting oh, yeah. to, to me to hear you, um, like you went into it right away. Yes, the the WTBs. Um, you know, some places better, some places uh, definitely worse. Uh, yeah. But but you didn't wait. You know, I, I'm seeing veterans wait ten, twelve, fifteen years, and of course, you know, some of our Vietnam veterans were, were waiting decades before they addressed yeah. these issues. At least you were getting on top of it oh, sooner. Well, I think, and I think a part of that was is that you know the army. You know, I was, I was medevac from theater for ptsd so i think that alone kept that on the forefront of my medical treatment and it wasn't until then that i was able to actually start addressing some of the physical stuff but in turn it turned to a physical side and i forgot about the mental health stuff you know because it doesn't really you know it's you don't see it every day you know it's foggy it's hazy you don't even know that you're different until someone tells you and you don't realize what the heck you're doing, you know? Yeah. That's what I'm, I'm hearing a lot is just that awareness piece and some of it. And, and, and the other thing is, is getting away from, uh, with a book and the movie, but through all this, David was right there with you, right? He was there, uh, you know, whether or not he was there in the office with you, but he was yeah. there at these, uh, you know, while you were going through the withdrawals and the, you know, uh, coming off. Oh, absolutely. The, yeah. And, and so it's, you know, again, you know, it's sort of like, you know, having a video right over your shoulder, um, but it's also your life. And so the awareness, like he had awareness of what was going on, um, but you, it, it was awareness that came to you very quickly. And after that, after that awareness, you took action to change. Yeah, it was, you know, people that I knew were telling me like, man, you're different. Or they would just tell me things like, what the hell are you doing that for? You know, and I'd notice, I'd catch myself. Like, God dang, you know, maybe there's something. And this was after my first deployment. And that was, that was a, you know, that was a fairly, I mean, it was the invasion of Iraq. Yeah, there was a lot of shooting and stuff. But, you know, my company, my infantry company, our first two years of combat, we only had one KIA for, and we were in combat every day. You know, we did, I mean, pretty amazing stuff our first couple deployments. And uh, I think our, our record spoke for itself. And then, you know, like I said, 07, that was a different animal itself. Um, yeah, it's crazy. You know, and, and that's interesting. And, and to go into that, and, and yes, you know, I, I, um, I've had other people um, say, you know, psychologists, even colleagues of mine, you know, how many deployments did, did you have that I have? And, you know, I had five different deployments. They were like, oh, of course you had PTSD. Well, only two of them were kinetic. One of them was, of course, the one that, that yeah. you and I shared. Uh, but not all deployments yeah. are created equal, right? When I was in Kabul, Afghanistan, no. the latrine was in the same building I slept in. So it was more of an Air Force deployment yeah. as a, you know, than, uh, 
than anything else. Yeah. Um, but coming off of two, like when you went into Iraq, did you imagine that that deployment was going to be the same as your previous two? Uh, you know, well, no, I mean, I just, I mean, shit was even getting worse in 05, but I think it was in my head. Honestly, I think, I think I was actually start. I mean, like an absolute, I mean, most men won't admit this or whatever, combat or whatnot, macho type A personality. I mean, I'll admit it. I was, I think I was starting to get scared. Uh, and, and that's when it really started weighing on me that, you know, this is, I mean, you, I don't know that it's, I, I look back at it. I could just feel it overwhelming me. And then that final deployment, it's, and they say, you know, the fear uh, manifests itself as aggression. And I'm not an aggressive person. And the more scared I was, the more aggressive I was getting. And I was, I was realizing I was taking some things too far in combat, you know, and, and in my head, you know, in my head, you know, like, how can I justify you know, shooting this guy right now because he's, he's, he might be doing something bad, but he might not be, you know? And, and that's when you start thinking in yourself, like, holy crap, I'm going fucking crazy. You know, it really dawns on you that your, your thinking has completely changed to necessitate, uh, the survival of your own well-being and body. And it's, it's, it's a really crazy transformation. And, uh, to see that in myself was was quite scary. So I was, I think that's when I really, that's when I started losing it. Yeah, and I was glad that that I went to mental health, and I was glad that that I caught it because fuck, who knows what could have happened? I maybe I'd be sitting in Fort Leavenworth for the rest of my life, you know, or worse. You know, I could have, you know, could have been so much worse. So well, and I think that's another uh, interesting point about your particular story is. Oh five, oh six, oh seven. People weren't going to mental health. It, you know, no, even uh-uh. you know what I was doing. I mean, you know, the people would come, you know, come talk to to Sarge, or you know, maybe you, you know, but you yeah. definitely wouldn't be the one that would be going to combat stress or whatever you know euphemism no. they used. And and so it and I mean, for no. you, it got to a point for you that it was so significant that you had no other choice. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, well, I went after my first deployment because my, my wife at the time was like, you need to go because you're having, you're, you're being weird in your sleep. And I was like, all right. So I went and talked to somebody just because she asked me to, but I went one time and we're busy in a, in an infantry unit. You know, there's no time for sick call. You don't go to the doctor, you know, it's looked down upon. I mean, you're a shit bag. You're a, you know, whatever you're, you're labeled. As soon as you, you go, I mean, you're like, oh, you become unreliable at that point, I guess, you know, it's like, what the hell? Uh, so it's really, it was really, I almost had to hide it when I would go, I would have to wait until I would schedule appointments on the weekends or wait until we had a block leave or something like that. So it was, it, and then in Iraq, my second deployment, it was kind of a necessity because there was a point there where I, I stopped sleeping. I couldn't sleep for days on end and it was really wearing on me. So I went into mental health, like, Hey, can you guys get hooked me up with some sleeping pills or something? And it worked. And I went home after that deployment and never really thought about it again until my third deployment. Same thing happened. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I was losing weight. Fuck. I think I'd lost close to 40 pounds. I looked like a skeleton. And, uh, that's when they deemed me unfit for combat. So 
crazy. Crazy to look back and see that transformation going down and then back up again, though. And and then to to look at each of those different things weren't um, your wife telling you, right? You know, I have a, a colleague yeah, who was on yeah. the show before, but uh, they say that uh, usually to get into treatment, and for you it might have been two out of the three, but it was uh, three things get you in there, your lawyer, your lover, or your liver, right? That, uh, yeah. it, that it, I've never heard that. That's a good one. Right? I mean, and, and you know. Yeah, you, I like it. You wouldn't have gone if it wasn't for your wife, you know, so our loved ones are going to tell us, you know, look, you got to go. Then the second time, you wouldn't have gone if there wasn't a a physical, I mean, you couldn't sleep physically. You wouldn't have gone because you have nightmares. Uh, And then the same thing on the the third side is, and so it's usually these physical manifestations of what's going on. um, And we, we try to address the symptoms rather than the underlying cause. Yeah. That's a, it's a vicious cycle. Ugh. And so, and then uh, after the pathway home, right? You know, you, you went to the pathway home. You yeah. spent some time there, I think, as a, a, peer, uh, a peer counselor. Yeah, yeah. So I graduated the, the program and I left and I tried doing the, you know, putting my life back together. But I realized that, uh, you know, talking to a bunch of, combat vets i mean some of these guys were special forces some of these guys navy seals you some some guys you didn't even know what they did because they weren't allowed to say i mean this was a pretty immersive combat group therapy you know treatment facility and uh, some of the most common traumas that i i listened to in in trauma therapy was these guys talking about how terrible it was growing up with parents that were always fighting and and that was some of their worst childhood trauma. And to me, that really struck a chord that, you know, my, my ex-wife and I, you know, now we, we fought all the time. And it was, it was terrible. And uh, I told myself I wasn't going to do it anymore. I'm not fighting. I'm not, I'm not going to raise my kids in that environment. I'm not going to be responsible for, for messing up the rest of their lives. You know what I mean? So I went home, went home from pathway and, and things didn't work out. So ultimately we divorced and, uh, you know, almost 10 years, let's see, it's been eight years now. And, uh, it's, it was looking back hindsight is 2020. It was, it was a great decision because my kids are thriving. Uh, they're happy, great students. Uh, they have great character. They, they don't have any issues. Um, they're just, I couldn't be happier with the little people that they're becoming. So that was a good thing. So the divorce was finalized and everything kind of went to crap again. And I was in the hole because she just kind of up and left one day with the kids. And I'm sitting there with nothing in an empty house, uh, kind of back to square one, figuring out what I was going to do. And uh, so I was in a dark place. So I called Fred at the pathway home to, you know, kind of help me out. Like, hey, I need, you know, kind of in a crappy spot. You know, what should I do? And he said, well, why don't you come out here? and uh, just hang out a pathway we got it we got a room for you and uh maybe we'll hook you up with a job as a peer support counselor and i jumped at the chance and uh went out there and what year was it 2014 yeah 2014 i went out there and i basically was the the resident advisor you know i lived with the guys and took them out to eat and took them to bowling and went to group classes with them and i took guys fishing uh, borrowed a guy's boat 
that lived there in town and was a big supporter of the program. I would take guys out fishing on the weekends and I was kind of like the, the sports and rec guy. Um, but a lot of the guys would come to me because I was the middleman between the staff and them. So, and I'd already been through the program. So I was like, I don't know, the, the omnipotent, uh, person of the building. So everybody would just come to me at night with their problems, you know, Hey, this is this, and I got to do this. So then I would go and talk to whoever I thought needed to hear about it and work the magic that way. And it, uh, it, it spawned a lot of great relationships with, with a lot of new people because I'm still friends with almost everybody that, that I helped go through the same program I did and they're all doing amazing. So it was, uh, it was probably some of the, it was the best like three years of my life. I really liked giving back out there. Right. And that's what, uh, you know, going back to what you were doing as a uh, squad leader, team leader, right. You know, taking care of Joe's and, yeah. and, and finding, uh, differently you said you know you were lost after you you know you left the military but this is something that gave you a lot of purpose and meaning and satisfaction um in giving back and providing support yeah yeah it was uh yeah i felt useful again you know it's like nobody wants to be that uh that old hammer on the shelf that doesn't get used anymore because it's outdated you know it's just i still had some you know like it's it, could help these guys go through the same thing I did. Um, there's nothing worse than blazing your own trail. It's nice to have a guide, you know. So it was, uh, it, it was, it was great to give back, and I think it it helped me heal a lot faster, and it helped me, you know, the more information, the more you surround yourself in that that kind of community, you know you start seeing other problems you might not have seen because you're talking to a guy and he's, he's like, man, this is, this is what really happened. And, and this is what messes me up. And you start thinking, Holy cow, you know, I do that too. So then you start working on yourself a little bit. So it's just a, it's a constant work in progress. And I, and I think the, uh, the movie, you know, and, and perhaps the book or, or the same kind of thing that you can guide without being the actual guide, right? You know, this is, this is you telling your story and as, as accurate as it can be. And as you said before, that gives you the same kind of satisfaction. Yeah, absolutely. Most definitely. And it's, uh, you know, it's not like I uh, didn't get rich off of it. It's not like I'm not famous. I don't have a million, you know, Instagram followers that hasn't really improved. It really didn't improve my life in any way, shape or form whatsoever. So. Uh, if anything, it was more of a detriment because I had to relive all that trauma every day, you know, just go through it and go through it and go through it. I, you know, I hit a, I hit a dark period after the film. I mean, it, it brought up a lot of stuff. It stirred the sediment on the bottom, you know. Uh, after some of the interviews, I'd find myself just sitting outside smoking a cigarette, just crying my eyes out. It was, it was tough. Uh, so it wasn't easy, but I would like to think that it's worth it if, if some people go and seek help or if it just, you know, shed some light on a subject that that's pretty shadowed. See, and that's the, the same thing, you know, I, I will bear the weight so my brother doesn't have to, even knowing that you, you didn't stop taking interviews. You didn't stop saying, you know, this is, I'm not going to sit out, smoke a cigarette, cry my eyes at anymore. You shook it off and you went back in and, and you continue to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely, you can't quit. 
Yeah, uh, I'm speaking at my uh, old high school next week. It's kind of cool. I mean, it's a small school. I mean, I graduated 30 kids in my class, so um, it'll be interesting to go back to where I came. I haven't been out there in years, so it was kind of uh, kind of cool to be called out to go do that too. No, that's uh, that's great, man. This is um, hey, and and is um, you know, and and not easy maybe for the is the movie is to watch and um, you know. Uh, even as hard as it is for someone who had been there to kind of go through it, um, I can see where it can be beneficial for for a lot yeah. of people, right? Who who hadn't seen, um, you know, like you said, the Vietnam vet or maybe that Gulf War vet that's dealing with the twenty five years down the line, or things like that. That yeah. uh, there's a lot of benefit there. Well, yeah, or maybe their kid or their spouse or a friend sees it and goes, "Damn." You know, I never asked them about that, or maybe we should talk about it, or maybe that's why they act that way, or, you know, it just puts a piece of the puzzle together. You know, there's a missing, there's a missing piece between what we did over there and between that and coming home, and there's, there's a big, you know, you, that's a big chunk of life that the people around you don't get to see and experience, and it, and it changes that person forever, and it changes those people at home forever, too. I couldn't imagine being on the home front waiting for someone I love, you know, waiting for that knock on the door or whatever. Jesus, that would be maddening. Ugh. So, yeah, it, it's, it changes everybody involved. And uh, so, yeah, I think anybody can relate to it. And, uh, yeah, I think it trans, transcends uh, all generations and anybody that's, that's ever lived or known a combat vet. You know, and that's uh, that's that's a great way to look at it. If um, if somebody does go out and watch the movie, um, and then they feel a certain kind of way after it, what what uh, what advice would you give them? Talk about it. That's it. Just just find someone that uh, find someone that's in a good enough spot and unload that pack. You know, take some of that weight off. Um, you can't carry that around forever. There's no, uh, all you're doing, I mean, that's, that's just that's some of the worst self-harm you can do. Uh, and people love to listen. You know, if you find the right person, there's, and they, and they can help you. Maybe they've been doing some crazy stuff themselves. You know, everybody experiences trauma throughout their life. If you can get through life without experience or a really traumatic event, you got pretty lucky, I think, you know? We got car accidents and natural disasters, and then there's crazy people here, you know, in the states. You know, you got sexual assault, you got, you know, just terrible things. So nobody, nobody gets out of this unscathed. So just talk about it. That's all you can do. Find someone you trust and unload some of that crap. No, that's great advice, and uh, and and this, uh, you know, like we said there at the beginning, is uh, we want people to to hear our story we you know all humans we want people to understand what's going on veterans especially feel as though we want people to hear it um and at the same time don't know how to tell it and so just uh just getting over it that's great yeah yeah and you ain't gotta tell it all at once shit just open the door people will come right in i guarantee it so if somebody wanted to uh, uh, reach out, connect with you, you got social media, anything like that? Yeah, I, I do Instagram. Um, 
you can find me on Instagram. That's about it. I, I stay pretty private other than that. Now make sure that we yeah. uh, we, we get your uh, Instagram, and maybe we can get you up to those million followers so you can be a Instagram oh influencer, right? Uh, <laughs> but I'll make sure that we have those. We'll get those in the show note. Hey, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show to talk today, Adam. I, I think it's uh, uh, it, every time that you talk, it'll be beneficial for a veteran, a spouse, or those who support them to hear it. I hope so. Otherwise, I'd, I'll probably quit doing it. But it, it's my pleasure, and uh, I really appreciate you having me on. No problem. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. Many thanks to Adam for sharing his story with us. This is the reality that many veterans experience when they return, and his courage in sharing his story can be beneficial to veterans, their family members, and mental health professionals looking to help veterans. Adam talked about one of the critical issues surrounding veteran mental health, prescription opioid addiction. It can happen like it did to Adam, simply taking painkillers as prescribed, and it builds up in your system. The opioid epidemic in the veteran population starts when we were on active duty. Both the DOD and the VA have started to address the widespread prescription of opioids for pain, but as recently as 10 years ago, Adam's story was a common one. Coupled with the fact that some of the leftover impacts of military service are neck, back, and joint pain, and chronic pain is frequently experienced by many veterans, how we manage pain without going through what Adam went through is important to understand. Another important point that I'd make that came from Adam's story is that he didn't wait too long to seek help. That's one of the things that I'm starting to see with post-9-11 veterans, the reaching out for help within a couple of years rather than waiting decades to address some of these issues. That makes me hopeful that the stigma against mental health treatment is starting to shift, and we're starting to get the message across that there's nothing wrong and everything right with seeking mental health treatment. If you're a veteran or care for one, and are recognizing some of the stuff that Adam was talking about here, then look for assistance. Your local VA, your vet center, or many organizations around the country are there for assistance. You can find resources at VeteranMentalHealth.com, which include individual clinics like the Family Care Center in Colorado Springs, national organizations such as the Cohen Veterans Network, or programs like Given Hour that provide a nationwide network of mental health professionals that understand working with veterans. Thanks for taking the time to check us out. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash 090. While you're there, share the link to the show with someone that you think may enjoy it. One of the challenges in changing the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health is how do we spread the word? You can subscribe to a bunch of different podcast players like iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many others. Check them out at VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash platforms. Don't forget to write a review. The first 20 folks that subscribe or write a review, take a picture of it, and email it to me at Dwayne at VeteranMentalHealth.com. I'll send you a free autographed copy of Combat Vet Don't Meet Crazy. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album, Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can see all of his work at TheRealDocTodd.com. Make sure to join us next week for another great episode, and until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The 
struggle is real Found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking it got out of control There in darkness I roam Struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds overgrown Pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies Co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P. I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee embrace my ability Looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.